0: Good morning, Crossman's Church. Uh, as Kurt said, if any of you don't know me, my name is Ryan Johnson, and I do usually attend our Spencer campus, and it is my privilege to serve as one of our elders and to be here to be able to talk with you this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor or new here, we're currently in a series called Broken Vessels about how God uses flawed, normal people to achieve his will and bring him a glory. When I told Pastor Jordan, the uh, campus pastor down in Spencer, that I was willing to give one of the sermons in this series he showed me a list that he'd come up with of a few different people in the Bible that he thought might be good for me to talk about. From this list, I chose Paul. I thought this seemed like a good idea at the time because there's a lot written about him in the Bible and even more that he wrote himself. So I knew I was gonna have a lot to work with and this ended up being both good and bad because like I said, there was a lot and I didn't run out of stuff to work with, but I didn't have an infinite infinite amount of time to prepare and there's a whole lot. Uh, But last time I spoke was last year's Monday-Thursday service, and I covered the whole of the Old Testament and the four Gospels in 20 minutes. Narrowing my scope to a dozen books in the time of a sermon is pretty good progress. Uh, Most Sundays at Crossman's, what you'll hear up here is a polished sermon talking about a particular passage while we make our way through a book of the Bible. This is not going to be that. What you're gonna get from me today is the patterns and the ideas that I saw as I read and reflected on Paul and his life. When I looked at the word count for my manuscript shortly before I finished, it was almost 50% direct quotes from scripture, so there's gonna be a little bit less interpretation than usual. When I decided on Paul, Jordan told me that he had a book that would be good for me to read uh, to help me prepare. So I got the book from Jordan, and I can confirm that it was a good book, but what he failed to mention is that the book was 500 pages, and it had well over a 1,000 footnotes. So it took me a lot of hours, but it was a good book. Uh, so if Jordan uh, offers to lend you a book, get some more details before you take him up on it. But now that I'm done throwing him under the bus, we'll get started. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to worship and fellowship with your people here this morning. Speak to us through the study of Paul and your word. And let us learn from this example of someone who was once opposed to your gospel, but who became the apostle to the Gentiles. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let what is me fall away, leaving only what you would have us learn. Amen. So first, a little bit of background on Paul. Philippians 3.5 says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. To expand on that just a little bit, Paul was born as Saul in the city of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia, to the north of Judea in Jerusalem. But despite not being born in Judea, he is undeniably an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe as his likely namesake, Saul, or King Saul. So he didn't pick the name Paul when he became a Christian. It's a common misconception. Paul was just his Roman name and Saul was his Hebrew name. But we hear him called Paul more often in the New Testament because that's where he spent most of his time. Uh, he was also a Roman citizen, and Roman citizenship was uncommon but not unheard of for a Jew in this time and place. It allowed him certain rights that the average resident of a Roman province wouldn't have. His combined Roman and Jewish background equipped him uniquely for the God job had for him as the apostles to the Gentiles. He had an in-depth background knowledge of Scripture, as well as the respect and rights of a Roman citizen. For example, Acts 2225 25-29 says, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was afraid For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. We also know that Paul was a Pharisee, and most of what we read in the New Testament about the Pharisees isn't delivered through a positive lens. They were one of the groups most opposed to Jesus and were constantly debating him and trying to outsmart him. One of the core Pharisaic teachings was purity and righteousness through the law and separation from impure things, specifically, separation from Gentiles. Though Paul was not born in Jerusalem, that's where he was educated, as a Pharisee, under the teaching of a man named Gamaliel. And we actually hear a little bit from Gamaliel in the book of Acts. This is regarding the apostles before the religious leaders, Acts 5:34. When they, that is the high priest and council, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill, him, kill them, that is the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, the Judas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So you can see what kind of man it was that Paul was educated under. Gamaliel was patient, calm, logical, and because of these attributes he is respected. But where Gamaliel was content to wait and see how things played out, Paul wasn't. Paul took action. When I think of Paul and read what he wrote in his letters and read what was written about him in the book of Acts, the quality of Paul's that is most apparent to me is his zeal. Dictionary.com defines zeal as fervor for a cause, person, or object, eager desire or endeavor, enthusiastic diligence. Looking at Paul's writings, we see zeal for righteousness, zeal for evangelism, zeal for unity in individual churches as well as in the church as a whole. But also, when I read Philippians 3.5 a little bit ago, I intentionally stopped before I got to verse 6. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And Paul says it a different way in Galatians 1. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. For a Pharisee like Paul, when he says the traditions of his fathers, he means the law, God's word, and their specific interpretation of it. Paul's persecution of the church was not based on a hatred for God, but a misguided, incorrect love of God. In his zeal, he did exactly what his teacher Gamaliel warned against. He was found opposing God. In the really long book Jordan lent me, F.F. Bruce put it this way. No one had kept the law with greater devotion than Paul, and the law, far from securing his righteousness before God, actually led him into sin. It was his devotion to the law that made him such a zealous persecutor of the church. His persecuting zeal was but one aspect of his zeal for the law. He persecuted the church with a good conscience. Right up to the moment of his confrontation with the risen Christ, no shadow of doubt appears to have entered his mind that what he was doing brought pleasure to God. So here's something that we can learn from Paul and be very intentional about in our own lives. Love God and love his word, but don't use it as a reason or a way to harm others. That doesn't mean that we don't say hard things. That doesn't mean we sugarcoat or excuse sin. But we do need to be careful. The gospel is hard enough without us adding our own stumbling blocks to it. So here's my clarifying statement. Have zeal, but make sure it's pointed in the right direction and be careful how you use it. While none of us are likely to go around arresting Christians and hauling them back to Jerusalem to face judgment, we can still examine our lives and our thoughts to see where our zeal is pointed. Think about the definition as you think about your life. Fervor, eager desire, enthusiastic diligence. Think about the things that give you a shot of adrenaline, the things that will always take your attention, the things that provoke a strong emotional reaction, either positively or negatively. It could be your favorite sports team, It could be something at work, a big sale or a promotion. It could be political debate or activism. For me, a big one is playing games. I sometimes play in tournaments at Game State and Spencer, but even just with friends or family, when I manage to win a close game, especially if it's by doing something clever, it feels great. I'm competitive, so I really like winning, but even more, I like feeling smart. So whatever it is for you, it's not bad to have zeal for the things in our lives. But it's not the most important thing. If it becomes our main focus, that's when it becomes a problem. Do we, or do I, have fervor for studying God's word? Do I have enthusiastic diligence regarding prayer? Do I have eager desire for evangelism or worship or good works? For Paul, his zeal for the law, a good thing, outpaced his understanding of the prophets and blinded him to the truth of Jesus. Now we'll take a little bit to talk about Paul's conversion. How did God take Paul, zealous for the law and persecution of the church, and turn him into Paul, zealous for the church and Christ, the fulfillment of the law? Paul's conversion is found initially in Acts 9, starting in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I'm going to pause here. After Paul arrived in Damascus, he fasted for three days. I think he spent those days reconciling his knowledge and his zeal for the law with what he had just heard from Jesus, powerfully and personally. As well, I think, he had to come to terms with his own actions. In his retelling of his conversion in Acts 26, he says, When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. He did these things, and now he realized he was wrong. In a raging fury, he was part of executing Christians, He was on his way to Damascus to keep doing it. So he had a lot to think about in those three days. Picking up in Acts 9.10. Now there is a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? So Paul kept his zeal, but now it had a good and righteous purpose. He goes from, in a raging fury, I persecuted them, to immediately he proclaimed Jesus. After he gave himself to Jesus, God used Paul and his zeal powerfully, and he became one of the most important figures in the early church, particularly among the Gentiles. He traveled all around the Mediterranean region, planting churches. So may we too. Let God's spirit reorient our zeal like he did with Paul. My next area to take an example from Paul is this. We should tailor our communication and even our actions to fit our audience. This doesn't mean compromising the message, just being intentional with our tone, our words, and our points of focus. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews, there are a few things that are consistent. For example, run on sentences and convoluted grammar, as well as a consistent gospel message of grace and a call for purity within the church. But there are a lot of details that are different, depending on who he's writing or speaking to and the particulars of their circumstances, their culture, and whether or not they're already Christians. In Acts 17, we read about Paul in the city of Athens. Athens was the cultural hub of literature, education, and philosophy in the Greek world. While there, he was witnessing and discussing with both Jews in the synagogue and Gentiles in the marketplace. And when Paul was talking to the people of Athens in the book of Acts, he directly quoted Greek poetry along with using Old Testament biblical thoughts. And even the biblical thoughts that he used, he ordered and phrased them in such a way to make sense to his polytheistic but educated and curious audience. Starting in verse 16. but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Another thing to notice is how Paul speaks to Jewish non believers, compared to how he speaks to Gentile non believers, compared to how he speaks or writes to his fellow believers as individuals in his churches. When Paul witnesses to Jewish non believers, he speaks with an aim to convince them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for all this time. When he speaks to Gentile land believers, he presents the gospel at a more basic level, without the assumption of the Jewish background or knowledge. For example, 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified." And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Some people that we interact with don't have any baseline knowledge regarding the church, the Bible, or God. Some have a basic or flawed understanding, and some people were raised in the church, even a good church, but for whatever reason have fallen away. So they know the stories, the laws, the principles, but they don't have belief. If we want to evangelize effectively, knowing where someone is coming from is important. When speaking to the Gentile non-believers, Paul also calls them to repentance, as in Acts 1730. But he's not specific in addressing these unbelievers' sins. I don't mean by this that we should pretend sin isn't sin, or even to close our eyes to the specific sins we see around us. What I mean is that we shouldn't be walking down the street and telling a gay couple, your lifestyle is sinful and disgusting to God, and you're going to hell. By the way, church is at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Come join us because God loves you. That's just not going to be very effective evangelism, and it's not following the example we see in Paul. However, when Paul is speaking and writing to believers, this is when he doesn't pull his punches regarding unrepentant sin. First Timothy 5:8But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household, he is, divide, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Or 1 Corinthians 5:1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. I picked these two examples because in them, Paul is acknowledging the sin in the culture around the church, but he's using it as a point to correct those who should know better. Paul specifically addresses this uh, later in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Isn't it those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I believe that our witness to the world would be improved if we would spend more time correcting the failings, sin, and division in the church and in ourselves, and less time trying to make unbelievers look like believers. Take a second and think about what sin bothers you the most when you see it. It could be some kind of sexual sin, it could be drug use. For me at my job, I hear a lot of stories of different kinds of fraud. And the ones that really upset me are when a fraudster takes advantage of a lonely old person with nobody around to help them, and steals what little they do have with promises of companionship or an easier life. We get rightly upset when we see sinful actions, particularly sinful actions that harm others. But we should be at least as concerned with the person inside the church who fudges their income when they're filing their taxes as we are concerned about whatever sin you just thought of from an unbeliever. Why? Because only the unrepentant sin of the believer reflects back to Jesus and his church. The sin of the unbelieving is the natural, inevitable result of sinful, broken people living in a sinful and broken world. And we should feel pity, not disgust, when we see sin outside the body of the church. So if we follow Paul's example and become all things to all people and put in the effort to tailor our message carefully to those around us, what is going to happen? 1 Corinthians 9.22 again. It says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save all I come in contact with. Right? No, not so much. It gives us more tempered expectations. That by all means I might save some. Even if we do everything right, some will not come to follow Christ. But thankfully, our job is not to change people's hearts and redeem them. That's God's job. We're just called to speak the truth of the beautiful, glorious grace and power of his gospel of redemption into a dark and needy world. And if we do that faithfully, if we live as lights in the darkness, God will use us. But it is God's power and God's mercy that changes hearts. It's not our cleverest arguments— It's not our most selfless actions, and it's not our most perfect moral living. Another example we can take from Paul is his acknowledgement and discussion of his own personal continued sin and failing. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And Philippians 3, 8-14. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward... To what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And 1 Timothy 1 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. As Christians, we're not called to appear perfect. We're not called to hide away our sins so that we look good to the world. In fact, when we try this, and I say try intentionally because it doesn't ever work, we are rightly viewed as hypocrites, policing the sins of others while pretending we have none of our own. Instead, we ought to proclaim and rejoice in the saving righteousness we have only through Christ and to acknowledge that whatever good is in us, it is not our own. We also need to keep striving toward perfection, despite knowing that we'll never achieve it in this life and we will continually and persistently fail. The next example to take from Paul is to work toward unity and reconciliation within the church. Even in the midst of disagreements and conflict, we are ultimately united in Christ. I'm going to give one specific example of Paul's life and then read a few more passages where he instructs others. First is Paul and John Mark, and this isn't one passage in the Bible, but it plays out over the course of uh, several chapters in the book of Acts. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. John Mark was on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, but he abandoned them on the mission. We're not told why, but we can see by Paul's reaction the next time Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark with, that the parting wasn't amicable. And we don't really know what happened after that, except we know by Paul's words in a few of his letters that they reconciled at some point. And they reconciled to the extent that Paul wants to see John Mark in his last days. Among the greetings that Paul sends to the church in Colossae, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. After abandonment and disagreement, Paul and John Mark are reconciled. We don't know how or when this reconciliation happened, but it is an example to us that it did. He calls John Mark a comfort and very useful. To me, this points to a part of Paul's sanctification. His zeal becomes softened by grace. He didn't lose the zeal, but he spoke and lived with more gentleness later in his life. His relationship with John Mark is in line with the bigger issue of Christian unity that Paul brings up elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10-13, he says... I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul? And Ephesians 4, one through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call: one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And Romans 15:5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. Remember that in Christ, we ultimately have a stronger bond with any Christian than we do with any unbeliever. We should feel a stronger connection to a Christian of a different race, a different tax bracket, a different political party living somewhere completely different than you compared to the connection that we feel with the atheist down the road who drives the same car as you, votes the same way as you, and roots for the same variety of Iowa sports as you. The last point of example from Paul that I'm going to talk about today is this. Remember, Remember that this world is not ultimately our home. We will not be here forever. And this should provoke two reactions in us, The first is a sense of urgency in our work here that we're called to do, and the other is a longing toward our forever home in the presence of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9. So we are, of, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Philippians 1, 18-26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better." but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And last, Second Timothy 4, 6-8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In the last passage, when Paul says that day and his appearing, he's referring to when Jesus will come again. Do we look forward to that day with zealous, eager desire? God used Paul, the broken vessel who called himself the foremost of all sinners, in a mighty way. We all have our own ongoing sins, our own misdirected zeal, but God still uses people like us. Remember that our time in this world is limited and we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to the one that bought us by his blood with his perfect redeeming sacrifice. So have zeal, but make sure it's pointed in the right direction and work for the things of God. For the good of his kingdom, our coming eternal home, and our present glorious hope. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you that through your Spirit and your continual sanctifying power, our zeal can be used for your kingdom and your glory. Convict us when we misuse it, and give us your strength to keep straining forward and pressing on toward the goal. As Paul says, the law of our flesh is sin, but thanks be to God who can deliver us from this body of death through Jesus. Let us not become complacent and used to the fact of our salvation. But let us be continually in awe and continually be spurred to praise you because of it. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.